Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We want to be a place where you can own your faith and take next steps in your relationship with Jesus. Maybe your next step is to seek out community and join a movement group. Maybe it's supporting movement financially for the first time or using your gifts on a volunteer team. Whatever God is calling you to do, our prayer is that you will step out in faith and let Him lead you. For more information about your next step, please visit movementcolumbus.com. Hey guys, my name is uh, Mark and I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here. I just want to say thanks for being here today because I know that we're all battling some form of depression after yesterday. As if this weekend uh, wasn't, wasn't tough enough, uh, some of us uh, are, uh, are we're, we're feeling guilty because we ate all weekend. I'm one of those people. I remember when my mom said, hey, there's only one piece of pumpkin pie left and I knew she was telling me that I had to eat it. And I felt that shame and then I thought, no, this is my role in the family. I'm going to eat that piece of pumpkin pie. And then I rode home from my parents' house, like, why did you do it? You promised yourself you wouldn't do it. So some of us uh, had the, the, the problem of, of overeating. Uh, some of us never got off the couch, watched football, and, and just hung out. Some of us stayed up too late, slept in, all that stuff. Whatever your excuse is, whatever you're battling this morning, I appreciate you uh, making the, the, the effort to, uh, to get out of bed and, and come to church today. Uh, if, you're, if you're wondering, man, why does that guy look so tan in November, I should tell you, I don't look tan, I know. Uh, I, uh, I, I, a couple weeks ago, my wife and I had a chance to go uh, to Puerto Rico, and we actually got back just in time for, for church last week, and so it was, it was really cool uh, to, to walk in, having not uh, been here for uh, a couple of services, and, and just to, to sit in the front row and, and be ministered to by, by a church that God had kind of said, hey, you should go start this church, and so it was so cool. Uh, to, to just sit up there and, and to worship with our band last week and, and to sit under Trigg's teaching and, and uh, just honestly, like I said, just be ministered to uh, and be reminded of what God is doing here and uh, what God has, has started and what he's going to continue in Hilliard. And so uh, as we uh, continue this week, there was something that, that Trigg said last week that I think uh, is pretty vital that, that I want to kind of circle back with uh, that'll tie into this week's message. So I, I took the time to edit this myself. I'm a video editor, if you guys didn't know that. No, I'm not at all. Uh, I edited this out of his message. But this is something that he said that I think is, is super important that I want everyone here to know today. So you guys, if you guys can play that Remember, clip. Remember, Mark's a genius. Okay. Uh, I think some people miss it. Can you guys play that again? Play that. Let's play that Remember, one more Mark's time. Remember, Mark's a genius. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, I know what you're thinking. What was Trig talking about? And, and it, you know, it can be a little confusing because we're doing a series in the book of Mark. And my name is Mark. And so some people might say like, well, Mark, how do you know that Trigg wasn't talking about the book of Mark? And I, I want to play it one more time. I want you to notice, you can tell by the way he says it, there's a little, there's some admiration there. I think he respects me as his boss. This is what Trigg said last week. And I think this sets up where we're going to go today. Let's play that one more time, guys. Remember, Mark's a genius. There it is. You can hear the intonation in his voice. The way he said it, it was, it was complimentary and, and yet humbling and made me feel good. And so I wanted to play that for you guys today. Uh, no, no, that has nothing to do with today. People, people that are new are like, is this guy always this egotistical? Yes, he probably is. But don't be, don't be detoured by that. I, I just heard Trigg say that last week, and I'm like, oh, I've got to edit that bad boy. So anyway, uh, we're still in our series in the book of Mark. Uh, it has nothing to do with me. Yes, it can be confusing that we have the same name, but we chose uh, this book because it gives us a great snapshot of the life 
and ministry and death and burial and resurrection, everything that happened in the life of Jesus and kind of lets us know who he is. Uh, as, as you grow up in America, as you grow up in the church, as you grow up in a, a Christian family or a religious uh, area, you're always gonna hear things about Jesus. A lot of us hear and know and think we, we know things about Jesus and we think it's best to just teach through this book and say, this is who Jesus is. And, and let everyone make their own decisions. So we're going to be uh, in the book of Mark continuing uh, today. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to open up to, to chapter 8, verse 27. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under your chair or around your chair somewhere. If you look there uh, on the floor, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. It's on page 769 of most of those Bibles, page 769, Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And we want to just uh, read this passage and see what it has to teach us today. Mark chapter 8, verse 27, page 769, talks about an interaction here that, uh, that Peter had with Jesus. It says this, chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Verse 31, then Jesus began to tell them that the son of man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. Verse 27 starts off in this passage and says, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking, he asked them, who do people say I am? And a lot of scholars, a lot of people say that this is kind of a turning point in the Gospels and more specifically a turning point in the book of Mark because things begin to take on a different tone after this point. In fact, most people divide this book into two halves and they say that the first half is, is kind of setting up who Jesus is, giving context to his life, his ministry, his personality, his approach. And from here on out, this exact interaction, these verses, everything changes. Up until this point, Jesus was letting the world know who he was. People knew who Jesus was. His disciples knew who Jesus was. But from here on out and, and more and more regularly, he would say things that would make people say, wait, 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 what, what, what did you say? There was a, an interaction in chapter four where Jesus was, was talking to the disciples and, and he calmed a storm and did something so out of their expectations that the disciples actually audibly out loud said, who is this guy? Right, More and more in the life of Jesus, he was doing things that would make people say, who is this guy? 
And even his own disciples, who were his inner circle, who were the men that would follow him, they were having to clarify, okay, how do we view this guy? What do we think of this guy? What does this mean? And likewise, Jesus was calling all of the world to to really have to clarify, okay, how do I view Jesus? What are my thoughts on Jesus, and and what am I going to, to view him as? And so he begins this interaction, and he asks a question. Now, there's a couple things that are, that are interesting about this. First of all, they, they had left Galilee, and they're in Caesarea Philippi. This was a place that was known for, uh, honestly, for its pagan worship, for idol worship. This was not a place where people would be asking spiritual questions. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus chose this time in this area to begin to illuminate who he was and what his purpose was. The other thing he did that was weird, he would have been considered a a rabbi back then just because he had the disciples who followed him, he had people who were looking to him and he was a teacher and oftentimes, in fact, almost all the time, students would ask questions of their teacher and then the teacher would explain what was going on. So the fact that the teacher himself, the rabbi himself, Jesus, asked his followers a question and he asked it in an area that was known for pagan worship was, was like double not normal, right? All right, this is, this is not normal as he's doing this in a public setting, but Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? He's asking one question and setting up the, the second question, and verse 28 says this, well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. Jesus was slowly uncovering all the ways that people had tried to explain him or all of the ways that people would, would sort of know him through the, the public sector. And all of these attempts fell short. All of these attempts, all of these things they had just said were completely inadequate. They had said, some think you're John the Baptist, and we've already looked at how their lives overlapped, how they were cousins, how John came ahead of Jesus to, to declare that Jesus was coming after him. John was a great guy, and yet to say that Jesus was John the Baptist was inadequate because John said, there's a messenger coming after me who's who's greater than I am, and John's whole ministry, John's whole purpose was to point people ahead to a greater messenger, and so that was kind of an insult. Those who said that Jesus was Elijah sort of didn't understand prophecy, didn't understand this timeline. They just knew that like, well, Elijah was a prophet and some people actually thought that Jesus was Elijah who had been brought back to life. And again, Elijah was a, was a good dude, but that was inadequate and that was an insult. And yet they even said that some people think you're, you're one of the prophets. That's like an even bigger cheap shot. They're like, we don't even know which one. We don't know who you could be. You might be this guy. You might be this guy. It could just be one of these guys. And all of these things, all of the ways that people tried to encapsulate who Jesus was, all of the ways that people tried to explain who Jesus was were inadequate. And then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. Verse 30 says, but Jesus warned them not to tell anyone. Now, it's, it's interesting that the disciples, when asked, who do people say that I am? They said a lot of things. They said Elijah. They said John the Baptist. They said a prophet. They never said the Messiah. But it's interesting because there had been multiple times throughout the Gospels, in chapter 1, in chapter 3, in chapter 5 of Mark, that, that demons themselves, as Jesus was casting them out or interacting with pretty crazy situations, had clearly said, you are the Messiah, this is the Messiah. And so it's not just like the inner circle of the disciples knew this. Word was out. 
Word was traveling and people knew this guy is different. This guy is other. This guy is the Messiah. I mean, Jesus himself had been saying it since chapter one, verse one. And we're already on to chapter eight and and chapter nine. And so those represent a time period where it was known this guy is the Messiah. I mean, the first words of this book said, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. Jesus never minced words. He said, I am the one who's been prophesied. I am the one the Jews have been waiting on. I'm the one who's going to save you and save the world. He was very clear about that. And this interaction actually establishes that or further lets him cement that. And so if you're a note taker, I want you to write this down. This is first thing that you can see from this interaction. Following Jesus requires an understanding that he is the Messiah. Following Jesus requires an understanding that he is the Messiah. And when asked, when prompted, at least one of the disciples was able to say that. Now, it's interesting when you would view someone as the Messiah, because to view them as the Messiah and to use that word, you would have to be admitting that you're in need of saving or that you're in need of a Messiah. And to call someone the Messiah, to say that they're the Messiah, would mean that you have changed your heart's posture and your life's posture toward them. You wouldn't just flippantly say Messiah. You wouldn't just flippantly say Savior of the world. You would have to believe that. You would have to know that. You would have to trust that. And that would change the way that you view that person and interact with that person. When you realize that you need a Messiah, when you realize that you need saved from your sin and from your life, when you realize that you're indebted and you're crying out by calling someone Messiah, it changes the way you view that person. It changes the way that you view that person. It changes the way that you approach that person. It changes the way that that you may or may not have urgency or didn't in the past. You will now have an urgency and an adoration because Jesus is the Messiah. That's why it's so interesting that this passage ends. It says, but Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him because the greater audience and even maybe some of the people that were listening in his inner circle didn't fully understand what it meant that he was the Messiah. Maybe they were using those words. Maybe they were coming to to understand parts of that. But he knew that they didn't understand their need for him completely yet. He knew that they didn't really understand that they would need to change their posture and the way that they viewed him, the way that they interacted with him. Simply put, he knew that they didn't understand what it meant to be devoted to him and to follow him. And so he said, hey, let's, let's not talk about this right now. Let's not, let's not, don't go and tell your friends, don't go and tell the world because any attempt that they would have made to, to talk about him would have been inadequate in the same way that people were like, ah, we think you're Elijah, we think you're a prophet, we think you're John the Baptist and they couldn't fully describe who he was. These half-hearted attempts to say, uh, maybe, I don't know, some people say Messiah, would have fallen short and been inadequate. This week I was driving my truck and I cut someone off and I wasn't proud of it. You know those moments when you're just like, you kind of look over your shoulder and then you're like, oh, that's not good. Oh, sorry, sorry. And I don't know if you do this, maybe you don't have one of these stickers, but I probably have a Movement Church sticker on the back of my car and I instantly thought, ooh, that doesn't represent the church too well. Hate to be the pastor of that place, right? Yeah, awkward, yeah. 
And so in that moment, I thought like, ooh, that, oh, okay, yeah, I sold, sold the church short there, and I always wonder if that person's gonna be like, a typical Christian, all right, you know. I think, I think in a way, Jesus was describing that because, because these, these, these people he was talking to didn't understand what it meant to say Messiah. And so everything they did, the way that they lived, the way that they spoke, the way that they interacted with people, the way that they would try to encapsulate who he was, was always going to lower the standard of of the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and what it meant to be devoted to Jesus. And following Jesus requires an understanding that he is the Messiah. And so for people that didn't understand that he was the Messiah or didn't really understand what it meant to follow him, Jesus was saying, hey, let's, let's learn more together. Let's discover more together. And in due time, when you truly understand this, we can talk about it. We can tell the world. But until then, he was saying, let's, let's just make sure we know where we're at. Let's learn together. Verse 31 says this. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Most of us have maybe never had a, a personal, actual conversation with Jesus, but I can imagine this moment that was, that was pretty awkward when Jesus looks at you and says, get behind me, Satan, right? But he knew that Peter was getting in the way of what he was trying to communicate, Jesus had, had called himself the son of man. It was the most popular name that he would use to talk about himself, to describe himself. And it refers to someone who has power and authority in the end times. And so you don't just say son of man flippantly. When you call yourself the son of man, there's some firepower there. There's some meaning there. Just in the same way that when you call yourself the Messiah, it means something. When you call yourself the son of man, you're getting people's attention because you're saying that you have messianic significance. You're saying that you're the chosen one, the prophesied one. And from this point forward, as I mentioned, Jesus kind of spoke very plainly and directly about his death and his resurrection. And he was preparing this audience, his disciples and his inner circle, as well as the world at large, for what would be happening in fact, he mentioned this in chapter 8, in chapter 9, in chapter 10. You're going to see more and more in the book of Mark. Jesus is just, he's not trying to be dramatic, but he's just saying, hey, I'm going to give my life. I'm going to be put to death. The son of man is going to be put to death, and he's going to rise from the dead three days later. And so in this interaction, when Peter is watching Jesus kind of unfold God's plan, Peter isn't considering that God has a purpose and a mission in this plan. He's just thinking like, man, I don't like this. Who I am as a human, that's my friend. I don't want my friend to die. This is bad. This is, this is terrible. And Peter's speaking against God's plan and God's mission, and it kind of lets us on to this concept that Peter was ready to hang out with Jesus. He was ready to be a friend of Jesus. He, he liked all of the things that came with that. People were like, hey, this is Jesus. He's great. And these are his, his right-hand men. And these guys are awesome. He was ready for the glory and all the fun stuff that came with Jesus. But he wasn't ready for the suffering that came with being associated with Jesus. He wasn't ready for the suffering that came with living God's plan and being a part of God's mission. And that's being exposed in this passage right here. Peter wanted Christ to be king. He wanted him to be the chosen one. He wanted him to be the popular one. But he didn't want Jesus to be the suffering servant that the book of Mark regularly reminds us that he is. 
He wanted all the prestige, all of the glory, all the, all the kingness, all that awesome stuff. But he didn't want his faith to call him to suffer as he lived on mission. And he didn't want his friend to suffer. This passage is teaching us that the Christian life is not always a road paved with wealth and with ease and with prosperity. We like to think it is because we have some incredible freedoms in modern days and in this country. There's no one breaking in that door right now telling us that we can't be together as the church. And so we often think that following Jesus is an easy thing, is a prosperous thing. Jesus is reminding us in so many words, no, 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 no. I'm going to suffer. By the terms of this world, I came to suffer and give my life for you. And this interaction with Peter is, is, it's toward Peter, but it's really getting to all the disciples and eventually all of those who would follow Jesus. See, Satan is obvious in his desire to go against God's plan. Satan's very obvious in the ways that he attacks, but sometimes followers of Jesus hide our sabotage. And the way that we sabotage God's plan is by not fully embracing it or by only embracing half of it. We want all of the good things that come with following Jesus, but we do not want to suffer. We do not want to walk with him and live his mission if it's going to complicate or compromise our lives in any way. And so sometimes as people who would say, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, we're actually insulting his plan. We're insulting his mission and we're compromising what he came to do. See, Peter only saw part of the picture of the life of Jesus up until this point. He saw like, hey, this guy is good. He, he, he came to be our king. He's going to rule the world. He's going to make everything better. And I get to be along for the ride. And this is so good. I've been waiting on this. But Peter only saw what he wanted to happen. And we need to learn from his mistake. We need to not just focus on the good that God can bring, but we need to know that God can use things like evil and God can use things like the resurrection that followed the crucifixion to accomplish his plan and send us on mission. And if we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, if we're going to say, I am a follower of yours, we need to realize following Jesus requires sharing in his suffering. There's no good way to say that. There's no attractive way to say that. That's the worst marketing of all time from an American perspective. If you wanted something uplifting, probably don't write that in your notes because that is kind of not exciting, right? Following Jesus requires sharing in his suffering. To follow Jesus, we have to understand what he did. And he gave his life for us. And for us to follow him, it's going to require that we surrender our lives. Verse 34 says this as this interaction goes on. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower... You must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father and the holy angels." Jesus is having this interaction and he's basically just explaining more and more and more in depth what it means to follow him, what it means to be surrendered to him, what it means to live your life for him. Jesus is, is laying out the cost of being one of his followers 
And he's already said, listen, it's, it's not as glamorous as you think it is. And he, he tells him this, following Jesus requires giving up your own way. He says that very plainly. Listen, if you're going to follow me, it's going to require that you give up your own way. To give up your own way means to let Jesus determine your goals and your purpose going forward. It doesn't mean that you get to say, hey, here's my goals, here's my purpose, and I'm gonna sprinkle some Jesus on top of that. No, it means that he's going to determine your steps when you've surrendered your life to him. If that doesn't hit you, or maybe that doesn't register, as I don't think it did with some of them, he says, to be my follower, you have to take up your cross and follow me. I think we sort of understand the gravity of that statement, and yet that's not something that's regularly occurring in our society. To take up your cross would have spoken to this crowd very differently. They would have understood the weight of that and the power of that statement because in the Roman world, the most dangerous criminals, people who were going to be put to death in society, were crucified on a cross, just like Jesus would later be put to death. They were crucified on a cross. They were hung on a wooden cross. They had nails driven into their, their, their arms and their, their feet, and they were hung up there to die until they couldn't breathe. And these criminals would have to carry their own cross to the site where they would be put to death. Now, why would they have to do that? Well, it was seen as the ultimate submission to the Roman Empire. It's not just that society had decided, hey, you're a bad person. Hey, your crimes went too far. Hey, we're gonna put you to death. You had to carry your cross, the cross that you knew you were going to die on, to the place where you were going to die so that you could then die. It was the Roman Empire's way of saying, we own you. We're in control, we're over you, we're watching you, and if you cross the line, we're gonna end you. A cross communicated submission to the Roman Empire. So when Jesus said, take up your cross, these people understood that when you had to carry a cross, it's because you were carrying a cross in submission to a higher power. Carrying a cross for the Romans would remind them of the Roman Empire's power in their life. And Jesus is saying, to choose me, to choose to follow me, to choose a life that's going to walk with me and walk after me is going to be a, a daily submission of your will. It's going to be an all-out submission of your will, your comfort, your future, your power, your plan, and you're going to have to admit and announce and proclaim my presence in your life. That's what it means to take up your cross daily and follow me. See, when we see Jesus as our Messiah, we're beginning to understand what it means to follow him. And when we're, when we're willing to say, Jesus, I want to suffer to live your plan and live your will, we're beginning to understand who he is. And when we're saying that we're willing to lose our life or give up our life to follow him, we're beginning to understand what it means to follow him. So when we say lose our lives now, we think like, oh, that's metaphorical. It might be. It hasn't been for everyone through history. There are people that would have heard these words, including his disciples, who had to literally give up their lives for their love and devotion to follow him. And that's the mental space, that's the place of submission that we need to be in when we say, Jesus, I'm following you and I'm surrendered to you. It's not just a cute thing that means you put a sticker on the back of your car so when you cut people off, they know you're part of a certain social club. Or they can look up your church and go on Facebook and say, hey, your people drive terrible. That's actually happened, right? 
No, no. To say that I follow Jesus means that I am willing to surrender my will to the point of death because you are all I want and you are all I know and you are all that I need and all that I have to have. You are my Messiah. You are my suffering servant. And I'm surrendering my way to you. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And I love the way that Jesus goes on to explain this. I love the way that he says, listen, if you're going to follow me, it's going to be serious. In fact, he says, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Jesus doesn't say, hey, good luck trying to gain the whole world. No, no, he actually says, what good does it do if you gain the world? He doesn't, he doesn't say you can't gain the world. In fact, the way that a lot of us view and interact with the world, you can gain and you can have the whole world. If you were to talk to Jeff Bezos, the the owner and founder of Amazon today, hey, are you the most powerful man in the world? He'd probably be like, yeah, I feel like I am. If you were to talk to Elon Musk and say, hey, have you gained the whole world? I'm pretty sure he would be like, I mean, yeah, I'm doing all right. You can have all of the houses that your heart can desire. And you can have all of the cars that your heart can desire. And you can have all of the friendships that your heart can desire. And you can have all of the vacations and all of the things and all of the relationships. You can gain the world. But Jesus is saying, when you understand what it means to be surrendered to me, when you understand what it means to follow me, For you to gain the world will mean that you're losing your soul. You can't want all of those things and achieve all of those things and have all of those things because that means that you will be making those things your God. And he's saying if you're going to go after those things and achieve those things, you're going to lose your soul. You're not going to have me as your Messiah. You're not going to understand what it means to follow me. And Jesus is saying this very clearly. There's a price and there's a cost to following me. And there's also a cost to not following me. Because people who find their belonging and find their worth and find their identity in things that can be lost and can be taken away and things that will burn up when this world ends will lose their soul. Jesus is, he's telling his disciples and everyone who will want to know what does it mean to follow him saying, I came so that you could have life and life to the fullest. I came so that you could be found in me. I came so that you could have a relationship with me and spend eternity with me. And I'm offering that to you. That's what it means to follow me. What good is it to gain the whole world but lose your soul? I heard a quote last year that said that maturity is knowing the difference between a blessing and a distraction. And I think what Jesus is saying is that a lot of the things that we would, we would say are a blessing are actually a distraction and are actually taking our eyes off of him. A lot of us pray for a promotion and we pray for more money and we get that promotion and we get more money and we do things with that money that take our eyes off Jesus. A lot of us had to start out in a certain kind of home or a certain kind of apartment and we work and we work and we work and we think when we get this home, that's when we will be an all-American family. That's when we'll be happy. And when we get that all-American house, we live in a way or we do things that take our eyes off of Jesus. And the blessings that we pray for are actually distractions that take our eyes off of Jesus and take our eyes off of his plan and take our eyes off of what it means to follow him. From cars to people to relationships to jobs 
to accomplishments, to possessions. We are looking for distractions, but we title them blessings. We gain the things we want, we accumulate the things we want, we have all the things we want, and they do not make us happier. And Jesus is saying, listen, what good is it to gain the whole world but to lose your soul? So we have to ask ourselves, is, is that, you can determine what, what that is, what we're talking about, is that a blessing or a distraction? Is making more money, is buying a new house, is getting another car, is going on that vacation, is dating that person a blessing or a distraction? And sometimes it's painful to admit that something is a distraction. Sometimes you see other people that have that thing and they're doing okay with that thing, but you know you can't have that thing because it will distract you and it will take your eyes off of Jesus. You have to know your heart. You have to know your tendencies. You have to be the one who keeps their eyes on Jesus. Having goals is not bad until they get in the way of your pursuit of Jesus. And having money is not bad until it gets in the way of your pursuit of Jesus. Having hobbies and having friends, none of those things are inherently bad, but they cannot take our eyes off of Jesus. Here's our big idea this morning, following Jesus is a daily, continuous, ongoing decision of surrender. Jesus was saying, when you realize that you are far from God, when you realize that you are lost in your sin, when you realize that I came to save you and I came to, to die and to give my life and that I was, I was crucified on the cross, but three days later I was raised from the dead to defeat sin and death, then and only then can you understand what it means to follow me. And then and only then can you place your hope and your trust in me. And then and only then can you surrender your life to me. See, to be a follower of Jesus is to apprentice the ways that he modeled in his life. To say that I want to be with Jesus. I want to have a relationship with him. I want to be like Jesus. And I want to do what he would do if, if he were me. When we understand the patterns that Jesus lived and we want to follow them and follow him, we're understanding what it means to live for him. There's an interaction earlier in this chapter that I think really sets up this, this passage that we read today. This is earlier in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. It says this. When they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, he said. I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored and he could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. This man interacted with Jesus. He had his eyes literally and figuratively opened by Jesus. And yet after that first round of healing, he was looking around and he, he wasn't seeing things clearly. He wasn't seeing them as he should. And through further interaction with Jesus, he was able to see things completely and perfectly clear as he should. When we talk about this concept of following Jesus, I don't think it's a coincidence that these two stories are, are back to back. 
Jesus is looking at his, his inner circle and his disciples. He's saying, hey, who do you, who do you guys think that I am? And they're like, eh, I don't know. Some, some people kind of say this guy, and we kind of think this, I guess. And yet when he begins to unfold his plan and his purpose, they're like, no, 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 that's not good enough. And we don't, we don't want that to happen to our friend. Jesus is saying that there are many people that do not understand what it means to follow him. It doesn't mean that they haven't been trying to understand, but they're, they're learning and they're growing and they're seeing more and they're seeing more and they're having their eyes open and they're having things revealed to them. And I think this could not apply more to us and to the modern American church. I think there are people in this room that maybe for the first time as we've gone through this book, maybe even today are completely realizing what it means to view Jesus as your Messiah and your suffering servant and as the one that you have to surrender your way and your future plans and your attitude and your will and everything that you know to. To follow Jesus means to holistically, completely surrender all that you are and all that you will be to him and to walk in his footsteps, and to walk, and to walk, and to walk. And I think there are people here today that maybe, maybe they've never understood that. Maybe they've never seen that, and they might be saying for the first time, I need to surrender my life to Jesus. There's no shame in that, because you can't rush or, or look for that moment ahead of when you, you know and you understand. And so as we pray and close here, if for the first time you're understanding what it means to follow Jesus, you can talk to him right where you are and say, Jesus, I know who you are. I know that I need you. I know that you came to give your life for my sins. I want to be found in you. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to surrender my life to you and I want to follow you. You can pray that right where you are and you can begin a relationship with Jesus. And if you pray that this morning, we would love to talk to you. I'd love for you to come and find me or to come back to the next steps table so that we can talk to you about living a life that follows Jesus. Because following Jesus is a daily, continuous, ongoing decision of surrender. And we get to walk with him. We get to follow him as individuals and a church and live his mission and be light in a dark world. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for the book of Mark, thank you for the clarity that Jesus gives as he tells us what it means to follow him. God, we pray that we will holistically understand that, that we will understand surrender and understand that you are our Messiah. God, I pray for anyone in this room that maybe as they interact with, with the Bible and with, with truth more and more. Maybe today they're, they're fully understanding what it means to have a relationship with you. They're fully understanding what it means to follow you. And Lord, they need the courage to, to take that step of relationship. God, give them the boldness. Draw them to yourself and draw them into a relationship with you. Give them the courage to share that with someone and to live that as they go forward. God, thanks for the chance to worship and to respond to you. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We hope wherever you are, this message encouraged you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or giving online, please visit movementcolumbus.com.